Um, do you want me to do it here just in case too? Yeah, just in yeah, exactly. Just in case yeah, yeah, it I'll like do it. cuts out okay. halfway through, I'll be like, oh shit. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast, where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle. And now your host, Robert Yannis Jr. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob. This is the show where we talk to fans and critics alike, um, letting them discuss a film of their choice, whether it's their favorite movie of all time or just something that connects with them emotionally. And we just really, even the playing field as far as film criticism goes, uh, bringing fresh voices on every episode. And this episode, we're talking to Michael Hinman, a longtime friend, former coworker, and host of Alpha Waves Radio. How are you doing today, Mike? I'm doing great. How about you? Pretty good. Pretty good. Um, it's a pleasure to talk to you. It's, uh, it's your Crooked Table debut, as I recall. It is. I've been waiting forever to be invited on this show, so thank you for finally doing it. Well, it's a long list, so you know we had to add you to the bottom <laughs> of it to start with. Um, so you know, why don't you tell <laughs> the listeners a little bit about uh, who you are, how we know each other, and what you have going on these days? Well, I mean, I, I, I live in New York City. I actually live in the Bronx, um, but I spent 20 years in Florida, uh, which is where you are. And uh, we actually met, um, I think you were interning, if I remember right. That's um, correct, you yeah. Know, yeah, back in the day, um, I was a reporter for the Tampa Bay Business Journal, and uh, you were interning there. And, uh, you know, I don't know what it was, but uh, for some reason, um, we became friends, and it's, it's like never wavered at all. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of that is because of our love of movies and television and stuff. And, um, you know, a lot of my journalism career has been in newspaper. Uh, it is still right now. But uh, I also ran a science fiction entertainment news website for the longest time that started out as Sci-Fi Portal back in the 90s, um, spelled S-Y-F-Y. And that's no coincidence. Um, I sold that brand name to NBC in 2009. And that became the uh, the name of a cable channel that everybody hates even to this day. And, uh, you know, home to Sharknado. So, uh, you know, you know, it was important. <laughs> you know, and um, so right now, um, I, I about a few months ago or about a month ago or so, I uh, revived Alpha Waves Radio, which was my podcast that I had in association with my website, which had become Airlock Alpha. And, um, and so I was invited to bring it back to Odyssey. I decided to do that. So yeah, you can hear that on Odyssey right now, Tuesday nights at seven Eastern. Yeah. And, uh, just, I should probably mention on the podcast, if you're listening, you could be listening to this in the podcast form. You could be listening to this on Odyssey, O-D-Y-S-Y-1.com, as Mike pointed out, um, Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. is the the Crooked Table on there. So uh, definitely check out that site if you're not already listening to it from there at this moment. Um, but yeah, that's that's pretty much kind of the lowdown on uh, Mike and our, our history. And, you know, we worked together since several times in Tampa Bay Business Journal. I did some writing for like Alpha back in the day and uh, just kind of we've, feels like we're always looking for reasons to have our our creative paths kind of uh, intersect. And I think that's it's really it's really important to me to have you know, like-minded friends and associates so we can kind of, uh, you know, promote each other's work and, and bounce ideas off of each other and things like that. So it's, re- it's really good and, to and have you, know, you on here. And we've even worked creatively, even though it's, it has never been produced, and that's probably more my fault than anybody else's. But you know, but you and I worked together pretty closely on a on a web miniseries that we you know that we co-wrote together, and um, you know, it, it we we were very close to getting it produced about a couple of times, and uh, you know, and just a lot of that is just uh, you know my availability. I think it's like it really hurts things because I don't have a lot of it, but but I love that you know, and I hope we I hope that does get produced because I think it's pretty timeless, and and I felt that you know that. Your work on it was brilliant. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, if only one of us was in a major city where there was some kind of, I don't know, creative uh, mecca, 
that they could tap I know. into. <laughs> if only. <laughs> well, I, you know, I like to I like to think at some point that project we can we'll figure that out and dust it off because I do think I mean it, I feel like we've gotten universally positive feedback on that. So uh, yeah, maybe and maybe it was a labor of love between us. So, oh yeah, absolutely. You know. And we wrote it we wrote it relatively fast. I think it was just kind of. Uh, six episodes, just kind of a week by week, uh, banging it out like within a couple months. Yeah, we, you and I sat down at a, you and I were at a, you know, at a restaurant. I think we were eating lunch or something, you know, from work. And you and I developed these characters. Didn't know what we were going to do with them. I think we we're just having fun developing characters. Thought about how cool it would be to throw them on a road trip or something. And, uh, you know, and I think it took us a few years to finally get that going, to get that moving. And then once we started developing that story, once we started developing that story, I think it really came together. And we wrote like these six, what, 12 minute episodes. Because mm-hmm. back then, YouTube was only like 10 minutes or 12 minutes long. So, and you couldn't go beyond that. <laughs> so we were writing it for YouTube. And that's how old the you know how how long it's been since we actually wrote it. But yeah, but it came together really fast once the ideas really started forming. Yeah, it's a prime example of life kind of getting in the way where we have the idea, it sits for a couple of years, we write it, and then we it sits for another couple of years, we try and get it made, and then another couple of years. Yeah, well, I think we're, I think we're almost <laughs> eight years now. Yeah, since something <laughs> like that. That's what I'm saying. Um, so. Yeah, so hopefully we get back to that. And if we if we anything ever happens with that, at some point we'll have to talk about it on the Crooked Table podcast and That's uh, right. get the word out we'll about critique. it. Exactly. We'll critique it. There you go. One of us will be like, "It's our face, my favorite film. It's my favorite project." But you worked on it. You're not objective. Like, well, you know, it doesn't matter. It still counts. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, t- today we actually are talking about uh, your favorite film um, that you and I have never really discussed at length. I don't believe. So this should be this should be an interesting conversation. So uh, we're going to listen to a little bit of the audio from today's feature presentation, American Beauty. We're having everyone write out a job description. That way, management can assess who's valuable and who's expendable. My parents are trying to take an active interest in me. Why can't they just have their own lives? I'm so proud of you. You didn't screw up once. Oh my god, it's a psycho next door. Jane, what if he worships you? I didn't mean to scare you. I'm not obsessing. I'm just curious. Why does he dress like a Bible salesman? Today I quit my job, and then I blackmailed my boss for almost $60,000 past these barriers. So that was a little bit of American Beauty. This is, of course, the 1999 film directed by Sam Mendes, written by Alan Ball, starring Kevin Spacey, Annette Bening, and a bunch of character actors, all of whom seem to are are still working today. I know now Chris Cooper and Alice and Janney both have Oscars, and I kind of forgot Alice and Janney was actually in this film uh, until I rewatched it earlier today. Uh, and it won Best Picture, Best Actor, Cinematography, like basically five Oscars. And it was the, by far the big winner that year. Um, so I guess we should probably get into what the film is for people that haven't seen it. So I'll, I can hand it over to you, Mike. What What is, you know, for people that haven't seen American Beauty, what is this film about and why should they why should they give it a look if they haven't already seen it? Well, this is kind of a, I, I think, you know, it's obviously sensational, obviously fictional, but almost like a, a deep look into life in suburbia. Um, and, and not even just, you know, like, just basic suburbia, but really it, it kind of goes deep down into to uh, the life and death of, of one man who, you know, basically was lost in life, who was lost in, in you know, in what family has done to him and what everything else has done to him. Him and uh, where one day he decided to just make that change and uh, 
you know, and that change set set Corsa's domino effect basically that resulted in his death, which he says at the very beginning. Um, of course, it's kind of tough because you know one of the people we're not mentioned that's in this film is the star. Of this is Kevin Spacey, who's been um, you know obviously and very rightfully so kind of uh, blacklisted from everything now. But um, I, I try not to judge films based on that. I mean, mm-hmm. so. You know, I, I still have to look at. I try to look at the overall film, even if it's sometimes kind of difficult to watch that with with, with those types of people in there. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's just it's just, just it, it's it's a it's a very interesting take um, with with Alan Ball writing it. And and if people aren't familiar with Alan Ball, this is this is what um, the the characters and and the, and the storytelling format is what was actually used as a template for Six Feet Under, the hit HBO series that came out right after this, okay. which is also created by Alan Ball. You know, and um, so like, you see a lot of parallels in terms of like Alice and Janney's character, for instance, and you know, and some of the other people and the way that they interact with each other. It to me, this is probably um, you know one of the few movies where I felt that the interactions between people were natural, mm-hmm. and and a lot of that I think is coming from, and I think that you see that now in a lot of like comedy shows like Curb Your Enthusiasm or, or Veep and stuff where there's a lot of ad-libbing, like where there's a lot of like, here's the situation, now play into it, um, which kind of helps create that realism in, as well as the comedy. But you also had a lot of that in American Beauty, which I've also loved, where uh, there's a lot of back and forth banter that's actually ad-libbed, that, that creates a realism, like that where you almost think that, that the Burnham family really exists, that they really live in this house with this white house with a red door, that they really have a neighbor um, you know, who is, you know, like a military guy, retired military guy, his wife who's has some kind of uh, mental issues and a son who's actually probably the block's biggest drug dealer. And, you know, and it's just, it's, it's absolutely, it's an amazing film. Yeah. I, I, yeah. It's, it's a really interesting movie. Very, it's very much a slice of life. And uh, yeah, I, I guess I didn't hundred percent realize until recently that it is part of the naturalism does come because a lot of it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily scripted to a T. It was more like, like, all right, you, now you two are fighting. This is these are the underlying issues. Pl- like you said, play into it. I think I think there was some of that, and you can feel it in uh, some of the, the the scene where he picks up the the plate of asparagus and it throws it against the wall and things <laughs> like that. Um, so yeah, so that that's I think that's pretty much a good uh, overview of just what the film is about. It it's really centers on this family and just I guess the, that it really centers on this one street. It's them and the only other characters are all their neighbors, pretty much. And, uh, and and this kind of focuses on the microcosm of these people's lives and kind of says something much larger uh, by focusing on on this one family. So, you know, why – you said this was your favorite film. Why specifically is that the case? And then what's kind of your history with it? Like when did you first see American Beauty? Well, I saw American Beauty on its opening night, um, you know, in the theaters. I saw a trailer for it. I think it was there the Blair Witch Project. I think I had gone to see the Blair Witch Project. And I remember like, you know, the one – the two things I kind of – remember from that and i and i'm hoping that i'm remembering this right because this is like 20 years ago but i remember like wishing i had taken dramamine and um you know because the because the camera goes all over the place but i remember seeing this trailer which was basically you know look closer kind of thing and it just looked totally fascinating um you know had kevin spacey and annette benning in it and some other actors i didn't recognize at all and um and it, it just looked really really good and uh um, you know, so I did actually go see it opening night. Um, <clears throat> you know, I was that interested in it. Um, you know, it, it's funny because this is this was a film by DreamWorks, and um, you know, and one of the things about DreamWorks, at the, especially at that time, was that Steven Spielberg was heavily involved, and Steven Spielberg would personally screen like every movie. Um, you know, there's that kind of a story where uh, the writer and the director of the film 
you know, visit, you know, uh, Steven Spielberg's office, you know, because they're going to screen the film. Well, by that, he means that they had to sit in the office and wait while Steven Spielberg sat in his personal theater and screened it. And then he would normally come out with a bunch of notes on things to change and everything else. But, you know, at least according to, I think, Alan Ball, um, that when Steven Spielberg, you know, came out of the theater, he had tears in his eyes and he said, it's perfect. Don't change a thing. Hmm. And to be honest, when I watch it, I've seen this movie probably 30 times now. Wow. And and to me, it's like it's perfect. It's absolutely – I cannot – I am so critical of movies and films. I cannot find anywhere in this film that I would change if it was up to me or that I would think it could have been done differently. Um, you know, And for me – and the biggest thing that I really like about this is not just the, the, the character's – journeys that we have in this you know and everything else but the fact that it all leads up to something that's unexpected which i mean i, I kind of call it because i love twists i'm a big fan of twists and i and i love trying to figure them out and i love trying to see like how those twists were hidden by the writers and so in a few times that i've done some of my own personal fictional work I've, i i like to incorporate twists and, and try different methods of, of putting it in there and making it giving you a fair shot as the as the viewer of that or the reader of that to figure it out but still try to hide it enough to where it still surprises you. And and for me, American Beauty has what I call, I don't know what the actual technical term is, I call it a double pump twist. Mm. Um, basically where you think, because you know from the very beginning that Kevin Spacey's character is going to die. You don't know how, you don't know why, you don't know by who. Which is a really and, ballsy move. On the, and then I feel yeah. like something that hadn't really been done in this, at least not in this scope before. Basically, hey, I'm the main character, but I'm going to be dead very soon. Yeah. So don't get too attached. <laughs> Yeah, don't get too attached. That's right, and and so you're you're looking through this whole film. It's like because like because then the film goes on as if like why how does any of this lead to his death? But then things start coming together, like all these different threads that were seem to be like loose threads suddenly start coming together into like this very well woven uh, fabric. And um, you know, and 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 there's a scene in there, um, and uh, this this can't be spoilers. It's 20 years old. If you haven't seen it by now, there's something yeah, there, wrong. There's with no you, there's but... no spoilers. No spoilers. Okay, so <laughs> we're we're going. But there's a. But you know, but the you know, but the you know, but the military father of the next door neighbor, you know, he's so anti-gay and he's so like afraid that his son is gay, and um, and he thinks that this interactions that his son is having with Kevin Spacey's character is some sort of gay relationship, which you know, it which which happens to be like he looks through the out of his window and he sees in the garage and he sees like like just in in the windows that he can see there's like gaps so he can't really see some of the stuff, but it looks like they're they're having sex, but in actuality, what it is is that his son is just rolling a joint. You know, because he's a he's a pot dealer. Right. Um, so so then you then you have see after this discovery where this whole big fear, there's a scene like where you know the father you know by, played by Chris Cooper shows up you know at the garage where Kevin Spacey was in you know because he's in there smoking and, and lifting weights because he's trying to you know boink his uh, daughter's friend. These are and, all things um, we'll get into in depth. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so the garage door like opens and it's pouring down rain and there he is you know and you know that he has weapons is also he's an old military guy and he's just soaked in the rain and he's like oh my god this is the scene this is the scene where you know he's going to get killed you know and it has to be i mean everything led up to this point but then it ends up he's not there to shoot him he's there to kiss him because he thinks that he's gay and that you know and he's so deeply closeted that um you know that he sits there and he kisses him and then he just walks away when when Kevin Spacey rejects him, when his when 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 Lester Burnham rejects him, he just walks away. And to me, that's brilliant because what happens to us as a viewer, as we're watching this movie, it even happened to me, and 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 I love it. If you can trick me in a twist, you've you've got me forever. Um, is that 
you totally discount him for the rest of the movie. You totally discount that father for the rest of the movie because you have his wife that's after him, his daughter that's after him. There's a you lot know. of misdirects going on for sure. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of people who like to the point like you don't know who wants to have him dead. And then and in the end you find out that it actually is the father that does it, you know? And and it's great because you totally dismissed him. You really thought that his story was done. Mm-hmm. That he did the kiss, got rejected, and he walked away. It didn't even think that maybe he'd come back because now, oh shit, you know, now I've revealed myself. I got to get rid of this guy, you right. know. So yeah, or or sort of the scorn for for you know the only person he's ever come out to rejecting him, or yeah, it's a combination of the two. Uh, I mean, for for me, this is only the second time I'd seen this film. I saw it once when it came on home video. Uh, I guess what, 2000 or whatever, soon after the awards uh, season had passed, that kind of thing. And I remember being really struck by it. Uh, it's not what's one that I've always wanted to go back and revisit because I, I, I did ra- randomly pick it up on DVD at some point along the last 18 years, <laughs> uh, and it, I just hadn't been able to pick it up because it, it's really it hit you hit you really hard emotionally, and it's not it's not really I mean, it's it's very entertaining, but it's also not like a fun movie. It's actually t- takes a toll on you at least it does on me like it it's really heavy to watch and um you know because the whole bottom line is the whole thing is kind of the like a the perversion of the american dream kind of gone bad because you know he's got the kid he's got the house in the suburbs you know successful wife everything appears to be perfect and i guess that's where the look closer tagline comes in um and i and i you know i just hadn't been able to really go back to it was like i don't really want to put myself through that just now so when we when you you know expressed to me that you wanted to talk about this movie i was like all right this is gonna happen i'm gonna go back and watch it see how it holds up and i think you know watching it now knowing the twist and uh you know i I had a whole new appreciation for the way that it's set up the way that the way that they are like multiple red herrings the very first scene you see is a scene between west bentley's character uh ricky and uh, Thor Birch's Jane, you know, he's filming her and they're kind of talking about, she's like, oh, my dad sucks, blah, blah, blah. You know, he's such a lame-o. And she, he's like, do you want me to kill him for you? And he's like, she's like, yeah, would you? And then it cuts away. It's sort of just planting that little seed of doubt in your head that, hey, maybe these two are sort of behind it. Um, and you know what's, what's funny about this, Robert, too, is that, you know, is that this film actually had other scenes that were filmed. It was actually written slightly differently. The, 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 the envelope story for this was supposed to be in a courtroom. They actually filmed courtroom scenes really? to where Jane and her boyfriend were on trial for murder. For, for Lester's murder. And so, in fact, if you ever watch the DVD, if you ever watch like the, the interviews and stuff, all the interviews, all the actors are sitting in a courtroom when they're talking. And that's the courtroom that they had filmed in. They were all like, they filmed it in the courtroom. So the whole envelope was supposed to be like this this trial where that video was the key piece of evidence. And and the scene that you see, like, you know, it was like almost like a drone, even though the drones didn't exist yet. Like the drone shot, the, the aerial shot of, of the town, of the street. They also actually had Kevin Spacey flying through there, like as if he's a ghost. Oh, wow. And they filmed those things, but they ended up cutting those things out because they felt it distracted from the main story. And and, and I think that was the brilliant cut that they did. I mean, to me, even though the, you know that it's kind of hard to cut those things when you you know set up a courtroom and do all these scenes, and you cut all that out. I think it's brilliant. Yeah, I think that it's a really smart move that they scaled that back because you don't need it any of that it's it's much more it's much cleaner and simpler to just like throw that little that little clip out out there in the very beginning right before he's like this is me this is my life and and Mm -hmm. and just less than a year i'll be dead i thought i think it's i don't know i feel like uh it it 
puts a lot more faith in the audience and uh you know here here's a conventional setup this is what you guys need right you know uh i think it's a much more artistic and uh classier way of handling the story and you know this this film was not only did it win all these awards and get all this acclaim this was part of 99 which is regularly regularly referred to by like a lot of cinephiles and film critics and stuff as one of the best modern years of film because you had this and fight club and being john malkovich and a lot of these like really, oh, yeah. really ambitious with the matrix which is one of my favorites a lot of really ambitious uh different the kind of uh outsidery stories being told and making it into the mainstream uh, and i think american beauty you know the fact that it, it did win best picture is really kind of emblematic of what a sort of modern turning point that that year was for, you know, what uh, what could become a huge box office hit, what could kind of cross over out of the indie circuit and that kind of thing, you know what I mean? Yeah, and that's what, and, and I think that's that, that was one of those interesting things too because it was during that period I kind of brag, I think like between 1996 and uh, like 2003 I think was, was my streak where I was able to predict the best picture winner on opening night of that film because nice. I went and saw it, it's like, oh this is best picture and I, and I said it with American Beauty, this is best picture you know, and um, and, 19, and, and I was kind of worried that my little streak, I think my streak was only like three years at the time, and I was a little bit worried it was going to end because there was a lot of great competition that year, I mean there were some excellent movies it was really kind of hard to tell like how that was all going to shake out like would would this movie which is so different from from what hollywood normally produces you know would this do and, and that was back in the day when when the oscars rewarded films for being different and not just being different but also being different and innovative like where they're setting new trends and doing new things you know to to you know that it's not just a popularity contest that it was all about technical aspects of it in terms of storytelling and cinematography and everything else and and I think you know since Avatar was denied, um, you know Avatar didn't have the greatest story in the world, but Avatar set up the whole you know what would become the movie you know industry for the next fifteen years, mm -hmm. you know with with the with the use of three D and the way that they used it with with the use of sound and everything else and the use of CGI. You know that really hadn't been used to that. You know, to me that that that's what made that a best picture, not the the, the crappy story. You know, it was that part. It was you know, and I like the Hurt Locker, but I don't think the Hurt Locker did those things. Right. And you know, and that was back I think when the Oscars, and that's why I, I don't have the same opinion of the Oscars as I used to. I used to I used to love Oscar night. That used to be a holiday in my household. You know, now it's like oh the Oscars are on. I guess I'll check it out or I'll or I'll or record it. You know, and I'll start halfway in and I'll just. Uh, you know, skip through all the boring stuff, basically. <laughs> catch, catch the highlights on YouTube the next yeah. day. Yeah. Well, I think... <laughs> That's about it. And that, that exact reason of your, what you're saying, you know, rewarding ambition versus, like, whatever the, the most popular film is, that's sort of how I felt, like, that year, a couple years ago, when, when we thought La La Land won Best Picture and it turned out that it was Moonlight, because I love, I love both of those films. But to me, La La Land just felt like the safe choice, and Moonlight felt like them kind of making a statement a little more, especially, you know, with everything that was going on in the world, being like, no, we're going to give it to the movie about the, you know, the black gay kid in Miami and like his ordeal and him growing up and kind of coming of age in that regard, rather than, you know, the throwback to old Hollywood musicals. Uh, so I, I, I think that they, they still have it in them every once in a while, but it's kind of, it's, it's kind of a, uh, a case to case basis to see if, uh, which way they're going to go. But I mean, in this yeah. case, this was definitely, this was, you know, watching it today, I mean, it's hard to watch this film and be like, yeah, this didn't deserve best picture. I'm like, mm, yeah, no, it's got pretty much everything you would want from that. Uh, in a, you know, addition to, 
the the emotion that I mentioned, just like uh, the imagery if I noticed throughout the movie, and I guess we're sort of shifting into our review section here now. Uh, just I noticed like throughout the movie, and I remember this very clearly. Uh, at the end of the film, I remembered him looking at the picture of his family at, right as he's about to get shot, and that like really stuck with me about like the contrast of him fondly looking back on the way things were and like how it is now, where his family's completely shattered. He has to ask his daughter's friend like how is her life because she's not telling me anything, um, mm-hmm. and you know he kind of reaches sort of a, a, a kind of peace in that moment right before. And there's a real focus on the family photos throughout. I mean, early on you see the the, the camera kind of pans over to the photos of happier times while they're like bickering in this whole toxic family dynamic that they have going on. And you know what's really interesting too the the part where you said like where he was asking he where he had to ask his daughter's friend about um you know about his daughter what was also very compelling about that scene is that she then and and by the way and this was this was right after you know he finally had a chance to sleep with her with mm-hmm. his friend and she was seemed to be all for it but then she said she was a virgin and he realized wait a minute you know what am I doing and he stopped you know, I decided to, you know, do the right thing, which is not sleep with her. Mm-hmm. And so now he's like making her, I think, grilled cheese sandwiches or something. And, you know, <laughs> and he's asking, yeah, and he's asking about, and that makes me hungry for grilled cheese sandwiches yes, now. But like, and he's asking, you know, he's asking about Jane, his daughter. But then she turns around and says, how are you doing? Mm-hmm. And he stops because, and he realizes nobody's asked him that in a long time. Nobody's asked Lester Burnham how he's doing. You know, everybody's judging him. Everybody's trying to manipulate him. Everybody's trying to push him in different ways, but nobody seems to care how Lester Burnham is doing. And, and I think that to him that that was finally, it's like finally, you know, it was like a breakthrough that finally somebody cared to ask. Yeah, and you know that that moment. I think a lot of in a lot of ways, this film is all about appearance versus reality. And I think the fact that he's got this fantasy version of Angela in his head, and then realizes in the moment that you know she's a virgin, she's not the sex pot he envisioned her to be. Uh, I think it is it really kind of brings that theme home and the fact that the fact that he turns around and then like turns into dad mode and like puts you know like this like the sweater or whatever over her shoulders and like starts making her food it was like oh you're probably hungry let me take care of you not like nail you like i was trying to do five minutes ago um I think I think that's a really interesting sort of reversal. This seemingly perfect family has is like really messed up behind the scenes, uh, and and I thought it was interesting too because the film starts with his perspective, and you see like, oh, look at my wife, what a bitch! Look at my daughter, mm-hmm. like we used to know each other, and now you know I don't know what happened, that kind of thing, and then it shifts over to his wife's perspective, and you see that she's like cleaning the house and like really feeling pressure to you know, cleaning the house that she's trying to sell. She's a real estate agent. I should have established that up front. Uh, that she's really under a lot of pressure to sell this. She's got to like repeating to herself, I will sell this house today. It's like a mantra that she's like under her own kind of pressure. Um, you know, that he, he has one vision of her in, her in his mind, but what she's got a, a whole other mess of, of things going on on her end that he, she never communicates to him. And I think that's the biggest thing. They sit at dinner and they don't talk. Wes, Wes Bentley, Allison Janney, and Chris Cooper, they sit at dinner. They don't really talk. Nobody knows. Nobody knows what's going on in each other's lives. Everybody's so isolated and cut off and i think that's you know that's another huge uh i guess common commentary that the film is making about like families and relationships it's like communication nobody here is is trying to work through everything everything everybody feels like the world is on their shoulders you know and i think another thing too that this this kind of helped open up a little bit was the idea that that just because somebody on the outside looks like they're doing well like you, you see some of these perfect families and you're like 
oh, wow, you know, why can't our family be more like that? You know, I mean, you know, we live in a society that, you know, as much as I love television and movies, it's also created a society with, you know, unfair expectations or unrealistic expectations. Now we think that people should be a Prince Charming, you know, before we fall in love with them or that like perfect families, you know, they, they, they solve their problems in a half hour or that, uh, you know, if the police come and investigate something that they should be able to use their CSI unit with all these great technologies that don't even really exist and, um, you know, and be able to solve crime, you know, like really quickly and, and somehow justice always prevails and stuff. And, you know, and I love that this kind of breaks that, 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 that kind of breaks that, 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 that shell of that to where, yes, you can look like a perfect family on the outside, but until you actually look closer, that you look inside that family or any, any person or any group that if you get deep down to it you know there, there there probably are issues there and just and it's probably worse that they're not expressing those things that where Absolutely. you know lesser burnham has to share those with us through you know you know through his life flashbacks from right before he dies that he's sharing that with us the audience but these are things that he really couldn't share with his wife he couldn't share them even with his daughter i mean by the time that he, he tries to figure out what's happening with his daughter it's not really through his daughter's through a surrogate Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know that his wife, you know, tries to seek, you know, to seek something in life to try to find her path, not through her husband, but also through a surrogate, through the king of real estate. You know, um, you know, and you kind of have all of these, uh, you know, all of these different elements where you know, you realize like this perfect family is far from perfect. And I think that and it's funny because this this movie came out before social media and all of that, which now I think that whole appearance versus reality thing is even more separate than ever before because you can post every, you know, everybody's sees things on Facebook and they're like oh man why can't I have the perfect life of this person but there's all this stuff that's being you know edited like editing is key to uh, you know kind of setting up a public persona and there's all this stuff that's not being said and I think that's really what this film kind of gets to the heart of it. Yeah, and you know, it, it, and that's and that's the biggest thing that, that you know, and I, and I talk about this quite a bit as much as I can when people want to listen to it. Is that you know, it, and I think it, in a way, I mean, there's a lot of things that hurt relationships to begin with, but in a way, it's that it's that idea of perfection, like where you know, I need to have somebody who you know is that perfect that perfect partner, you know, based on what I've seen in fairy tales. It used to be fairy tales that we judged by, but now you know, you know, television and movies have become so realistic. And but they still kind of put out those, you know. I, I saw um, this weekend. I saw the Green Book uh, with uh, Vigil Mortensen and um, uh, Mahershala Ali, and um, you know, and 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 I like the concept of it. I like to think, but it was so Hollywoodized. Mm-hmm. That was my I mean, issue you know, with it too. Yeah, I mean, there was like, a, and I'm like, and I really can't wait to see, you know, what actually isn't true about this, which I would want to say is probably about 70%. Um, because, I, I mean, you know, and, and like the one scene at the end, like they get back in a deep snowstorm, you know, um, you know, the, the, you know, video gets dropped off in the Bronx in the middle of a snowstorm while uh, Marshall's character goes back to Carnegie Hall in Manhattan. But then later, even after he gets home and settled, he decides to drive back through the snow to the Bronx. <laughs> I'm sorry. There's no way that that happened. <laughs> you're like you're like I'm a New Yorker now. Even in a yeah, even in a even when in a rented car, that's just not going to happen. I mean, and I mean, and I, just a few weeks back, I think you, when New York City had its first snowstorm, it shut down the whole city. I got stuck in traffic for six and a half hours. Jeez. So you know, I was basically living in my car. I felt like it was in a Doctor Who episode. You know, the one where they're stuck on the highway, living in their cars for thirty years, and that's what it kind of felt like. Um, I was wondering if I was going to have to you know start you know. Um, you know, foraging for food or something, but um, yeah, it's just I don't like that. I I think that you know, and, and you see that a lot too. Like where 
um, I, I have an issue like when when movies when the movies take historical things without calling it historical fiction. Like Gladiator is, is historical fiction. Right. You take real characters and you put them in fictional elements. So, um, you know, so and they say that up front that it's fictional. But then you get like like I always pick on. Um, I think it was the Johnny Depp film where he where he played the guy who wrote Peter Pan. Oh, was that Neverland. was that Finding Neverland? Yeah. That was so fictionalized, so fictionalized that they should have just called it fiction because, I mean, there's so many elements of that that just aren't true. And I understand you have to fictionalize things sometimes. You know, it's it's one of those things you 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 have to fictionalize it, and you know, because sometimes you have to make it more interesting or more palatable, or you got to combine a few people into one character because you can't have these you know disparate characters out there doing that but but to me like when you when you go too far like when you go so far to hollywoodize something then it's like was that really even worth telling you know as a true story right maybe just use it as an inspiration you know like inspired by a true story and then you just create a fictional thing i mean that's fine but like you know like, i mean a league of their own is a good example of that a league of their own took a very real thing this formation of this girls baseball league i think i think the rockford beaches were a real team i can't remember if they're a real team or not but but everybody on the, on the team were fictional mm-hmm. you know and you knew they were fictional because then they kind of tell you that at the end glow the the tv series on netflix is another example glow really existed there really was a, a uh, you know the gorgeous ladies of wrestling um but you know and, and even though that a lot of these characters kind of emulate real people it's not it's fictional mm-hmm. you know everything about it is fictional and that's fine it creates you know orange is the new black based on real people based on real experience but very fictional and and it's clear that it's fictional and i think that you know that that if we're going to draw those lines we need to make clear that those that there are lines there that this is this is really what happened and this isn't no i agree and the fact that american beauty has i think the fact that these are fictional characters gives them more free reign in a way to play it more real because when you have something that's based on real events or based on real people at least i think it gets you know everybody wants to have their say for example with green book the the real tony lip his like son i think is a is one of the co-writers of the movie so it's not yeah. going to be very objective or like you know uh bohemian rhapsody which is another one that i i, I like to mention a lot lately that p- plays very fast and loose with the timeline of freddie mercury's life because well, Roger Taylor and uh, and uh, crap Brian May are involved in the production of the film, so they're telling their version of the story, focusing on them and like shifting things around to make it again, like you said, more Hollywoodized. So, yeah, uh, very unrealistic. I mean, and, you know, and that's a good example. Bohemian Rhapsody, even though I have not seen it yet, um, you know, but from what I've read in certain reviews of it. Um, the you know with Bohemian Rhapsody is that you know I mean and, and my issues with the relationship that you know that Freddie Mercury has you know with his you know which which person who become his partner mm-hmm. up until his death that the way that they showed how they got together you know not only is it not accurate it's totally silly and and it creates like this false impression about how you know how gay relationships work right. you know that you just show up at somebody's door and say hey you're my boyfriend now and, you know. <laughs> And then you walk off and you tell them, "Hey, look, it's Pretty my boyfriend." It's, that's 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 not how that works, <laughs> you right. know. And I mean, and and to me, that's just that's silly. And I think that that's that's actually degrading to Freddie Mercury's memory. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. But um, bringing it back to American Beauty, uh, like what <laughs> what do you think? You know, I got a tangent off. Sorry, <laughs> it's okay. Hey, that's all. We're all about tangents here. Uh, you know, what do you, you know, we're going to talk about Kevin Spacey's performance and set aside his, his real life uh, issues and all of that. So what do you think about his performance that makes it so, uh, so memorable, so powerful, so Academy Award 
uh, worthy. Well, I mean, I, I think the fact that he plays it so that 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 you know, to me, the best actors are the kind, especially the big named actors, are the kind that you forget who they are. Mm-hmm. That you know that you don't see that you know, and that's one reason why I can still watch. I watched American Beauty again probably a few weeks ago with my, you know, with my better half, and um, you know that was his first time seeing it ever, and um, you know, and it was it was a very uh, interesting experience for him as well, and you know, like for him, he sees Kevin Spacey as the person who you know attacked you know Anthony Rapp basically when mm-hmm. Anthony Rapp was a teenager and all the the stuff that's happening with that, but but here you totally forget that that's who that is. You know, the the best actors. Are the kind that 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 would even without makeup or the help of prosthetics or anything that you totally forget who they are, and you know and you know Kathy Bates is another one of those examples for me where Kathy Bates you know her look her feel everything about her is so Kathy Bates like until she takes on a character and then you totally forget it's Kathy Bates because mm-hmm. she's so brilliant at doing that and I think that because what they do is they create these characters and the characters seem so full and so real like they have like this whole complete story behind them even we don't know what that story is but it feels like it exists and for lester burnham i really feel like that that is lester burnham that that is somebody who you know that we just kind of picked up you know in the middle of him jerking off in the shower and that's where we get started and you know and and, you know we pick up his life from there until when it ends and i think that's what makes a difference for that and it's interesting too because i feel like his character i mean his character undergoes a pretty radical transformation from the beginning of the movie being this sort of pathetic sad sack like running out to the car and all his like his briefcase opens up and papers going everywhere. He's very like kind of almost like laughably bumbling at the beginning. And then, yeah. and then he becomes really empowered throughout the course of the film, which I think, you know, uh, is, is a testament to the fact that he's has all this pent up hostility and that he's really been biting his tongue with his wife for however many years this, this dynamic has been this bad. And, uh, and it also opens up a lot of the, a lot of the, the thing, but the thing that's funny about this film is that it, it's 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 heavy, but it and it's very obviously a drama, but it's also elements of dark comedy, and they come out of sort of the, the bizarre thrill of kind of seeing his like breakthrough slash breakdown, uh, you know, over the course of the film, whether it's like his midlife crisis manifesting in in his sexual attraction for his daughter's friend, or buying you know buying an expensive like sports car, and starting all of a sudden starting to work out, and I think it's it. You know, it, it feels it all feels grounded, and that he's just looking for a uh, a sense of validation, uh, like something to something to break him out of his out of this basically this world that he feels trapped in. And you know, and the visual, and, and you know, and the direction of this, you know, and everything else also helps with that with that growth, with that change in Lester Burnham, because you know, if you if you see him at the beginning of the film, we see him from a distance, and if we don't see him from a distance in the beginning, if we see him up close, we'll see him like with something else, like like for instance, like we see him. Um, like where we see his reflection in the computer screen and the computer screen has like these these columns of text which look like jail bars so we see his reflection which looks like he's in prison um, when he's first talking to the uh, to the guy the um, was the guy that was looking to get rid of somebody the uh, efficiency guy mm-hmm. when you know Brad when he's sitting in the office with Brad when you first see Kevin Spacey in that in that scene he is so tiny it looks like the camera is pretty much up at the Hubble Space Telescope yeah, know you know so. shooting him he looks so small but as he grows his balls basically as he as he turns you notice he gets bigger and bigger and bigger you know that you know that 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 confidence shows he's growing bigger and bigger and and i think that you know the other visual aspects of this too which kind of show like kind of the dread that's there even though like we think that it doesn't exist is you know is the use of red in this film and and i think that um if you notice everything in this film is muted except for the reds Mm mm-hmm 
So, like, if you see the dinner scene, the flower scene, you know, petals the, and everything, the flower flow. petals, the thing, the, the the red, the red roses, they're so bright compared to everything else. Which kind of showing that, sure, you could put a, you know, like a bowl of roses on a table, but that doesn't mean everything is great on the inside. Right, and it makes sense too because the the roses are really kind of his visual fantasy of Angela and that really becomes his kind of the catalyst for his awakening so it's almost like uh, um, sort of like a, a smaller a smaller more intimate version of like Pleasantville where like oh there's a little bit of color in my life for the first <laughs> yeah. time and it, it's Pleasantville's kinda, a great movie too. that's a great movie too actually yeah uh, I haven't seen that in a long time and that is also I believe, also 1999 I think too that's what I'm saying it yep, was like, so. outstanding here for uh, movies but that's that, that's really you know what sorts starts to open up his perspective, and um, you know get give him some kind of motivation to to change his life. I mean, obviously, you know it, what makes what, what's complicating about that is that it's you know we're uh, watching the film. We're sort of happy that he's kind of I guess looking to improve himself, even though his motivation is ultimately something kind of icky. Um, so how do you, what do you feel about the fact that, you know, the Angela Lester subplot as well as kind of, I mean, even with Ricky and Jane, like it basically, basically starts out kind of quasi stalking her and then that becomes a romance. How do you, how do you feel about the way that like these, uh, these sort of ultimately questionable dynamics evolve over the course of the movie? I guess it really does kind of underscore the whole appearance slash reality thing in that it things seem to be one way, but they're actually the other. Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and the thing is about some of these, especially the relationship between Lester and Angela, um, you know, and how that develops. Um, I remember my little sister who likes to, who used to like to, uh, um, who used to like to take my movie suggestions, but I think that some of the stuff that I like, you know, she's like, what the hell, you know, kind of thing. But, um, you know, but she, she watched American Beauty based on my suggestion. And I don't know if she's ever gotten past the scene where he almost sleeps with Angela. And um, like she just stops, she just can't seem to get past that because you know, and that's the problem sometimes. If you you know you want to be provocative in a way, but you want to be, you know to help highlight aspects of a story, but sometimes you know for some people it just might be too much, and for whatever reasons, and you know, and there are a lot of things that are difficult to watch. I mean, there's a lot of films that I see that I've only ever seen once, mm -hmm. even though I love them, but only because it's too difficult to see it again. And, um, you know, because sometimes it hits too close to home or um, it's something so disturbing that it's just I, I can't go through that again. Um, you know, and it's it, it's tough. I mean, the you know, like um, what is the, you know, Six Degrees of Kevin Spacey? The uh, There was a Kevin Spacey film back in the late 90s where uh, he and some other people, they were like um, like they were like guards in a children's detention center. And, um, you know, and these kids from from the city, I think from Hell's Kitchen, um, like got in some trouble and ended up there and they ended up like getting abused while they were there. And, uh, Are you talking about sleepers? Yeah, I think it's sleepers. Yeah, I think it's what it's called. I, was, I think it's sleepwalkers and I knew that wasn't right. Um, so I think sleepers is right. And, you know, and I've only seen that movie once. I love that movie. But, you know, but the whole point, you know, the parts of the abuse and stuff, you know, it's, it's so – I don't know. At least back then, I was a lot younger. Maybe I'm a little bit more jaded now, and so uh, you know. But that, that's hard to watch. You know, it, that's that for me is just that's very difficult to see, and you know, and and to know that those characters it, it helps you know serve as motivation. Even though I mean they shouldn't do what they you know what they did you know which is you know killing somebody and then you know using all the resources to get away with it. Um, but 
I mean, but it's still, I mean, at least to me, that does at least provide justification for it. And, and that's why it has to be that disturbing. I mean, and the audience has to understand that justification. Well, sometimes you need, you need, like, you know, like you were saying, you need to go that, you need to go that far with it to really make an impact on your viewer. And I think with something like American Beauty, it is really bleak. It is very uncompromising. There's, as we were, you know, the dark comedy I was mentioning with Lester, that's pretty much the only levity you get out of the film. And even then, it's kind of this, like, perverse, twisted version of of comedy. We're kind of, like, living vicariously through this guy who just doesn't give a shit anymore. And is just yeah. kind of living life as he pleases, being like, wouldn't that be nice? But also in the context of all this other stuff going on. Um you know, and then I think a lot of times, I think people that talk about this movie, I think they forget about Annette Benning, and I think about forget about her, her performance, and oh, she brilliant. she almost won an Oscar for this too. I don't, I don't even she should have won remember an Oscar who she, for this. Can't remember who she lost to offhanded. Uh, I think she deserved. I think whoever won it did absolutely deserve it too. I mean, because I was thinking that was a tough year to win stuff, but Annette Benning is brilliant in this movie. Yeah, yeah, she is. She's she, and it, it, it she's been consistently underrated as an actress like i feel like every couple years she does a film that gets a lot of uh, like critics praise and, and you know gets a lot of smaller awards but then when it comes to the oscars she like either gets nominated and loses to hillary swank oh that's who won there you go hillary swank uh, she yeah, lost swank. she lost to hillary swank twice uh <laughs> <laughs> and uh, or she doesn't get now she falls just short of the the you know the top five best actresses that year but she because she her character could easily be sort of this uh, just cliched, like nagging wife character. But I mean, the fact that the movie takes the time to delve into like why she, you know, why she feels so wound up and um, her own, that she's not like, as she says in the film at one point that she's not, Lester's not the only one that's sexually frustrated. And uh, you know, she's not, she's under all this pressure on her own. You, You sort of like the film, I guess you get more of a thrill from watching Lester kind of let loose, I guess. But mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't really necessarily even either. It doesn't really take sides either. You know, you sort of you understand where every character is coming from, as opposed to just you know putting Carolyn just straight into the villain category. And I think that's yeah, that's really a real strength of the movie and you know Benning's performance. And even like um, and and even though I, I think Chris Cooper's character is probably if you're going to have a bad guy, that his is probably the bad guy. But Ultimately, in a way yeah. though, you. You also understand, you know, what he's going through. I mean, this is somebody who's so closeted, who's so ashamed, and you know, and it comes back to that whole idea that the people who are usually the most homophobic, for instance, you know, are the ones that are probably the most gay. You know, that are probably the ones that are so afraid that that everybody would know that they have to go to an extreme to show that they're not. Where the people who, you know, you know, even if you sit there and you claim that they were and they're not, they don't care. It's like, I know what I am, you know, and, you know, and, you know, like, well, then they definitely probably are what they are. But for him, you know, especially in the 90s, I, I think that a lot of times we forget about that historical context. You know, the 90s was not an easy time to come out. There were no, I mean, there's still a lot of, no, you know, non-rights for, you know, for the LGBT community now, even though there's, it's a lot better than what it was. But, you know, back then it was definitely not better. Um, you know, back then it was still very, I mean, this was only a few years after Philadelphia, mm-hmm. you know, which was still considered groundbreaking. And now people watch that. It's like, oh, what's so groundbreaking about it? It's like, you should have watched it when, at the time when it came out. It was pretty groundbreaking. And, you know, and I think that that, you know, that those kind of things is that it's important to, to, you know, to see that and, you know, but still understand the motivations. I think that that movies that where you don't understand the motivations of, of, of the bad guys where you have these two dimensional, you know, um, antagonists. I, I think that, 
Um, it doesn't work. Like if you don't understand why, you know, in the in the X Men films, you know, you know, Magneto is supposed to be this bad guy, but you actually understand why, you know, that he basically has the same goal that Professor X has. He just has a different way of doing it. He doesn't think that the nice, you know, follow the rules way is the way that's going to achieve it. You know, he feels that you have to disrupt the system. Right. And you know, and that's it. so it's basically the same goal, different approach. You know, he's not setting out to be bad. He just feels like in order to, to get attention, you kind of have to, you know, to protest in some way or, or, or disrupt in some way. And, and to me, those are the best villains. Those are the best any type of characters where you feel like you, they're justified in what they do. That's what creates that realism is that is knowing that those justifications are there. Well, that's the thing. Real villains don't believe that they're doing anything villainous. They think that they're, what they're doing is for, I mean, to go with a very 2018 example, Thanos thinks he's doing a good thing by snapping his fingers. He thinks he's saving the universe from kind of destroying itself. Just like in this mm-hmm. film, Chris Cooper's character thinks that he's protecting his son from kind of, I guess, the self sort of self-loathing he feels or like, you know, the judgment of the world or people like him. And it's really, it's much more complicated than just like, no, I'm just going to, oh, I'm oppressive and I just like to beat up my son he, he believes he's doing the best like when he tells his son you know this is for your own good he really believes that that's the case you know you make a good point about when this film came out in 99 this that twist being sort of a, a still kind of a bold move for a major a major film to uh, to have to be hitting on that sort of repressed uh you know repressed repressed closeted homosexuality in that such a way and have it kind of, you know, come out of, not come out of nowhere necessarily, but, you know, for, for like straight people going to see this, like just going to see movies, uh, you know, just going to see the, you know, the big Oscar movie of the season, maybe they weren't expecting that. And I think it maybe opened a lot of people's eyes to, oh, really, that's people, some kind can process it that way, because a lot of people don't have that experience. And that's, you know, I think that's really part of what makes movies so interesting is that you get to see other points of view. I, a lot of one I one I keep I go to sometimes is something like uh, *Beasts of the Southern Wild*, which was nominated for a few Oscars, of, like I don't know, if the, less than a decade, like within the last few years. And that's about like this little girl and her father that live like in this like really rundown area of like New Orleans that's like flooded and stuff. And it, it's like a perspective, a, a part of life it, that you would never see otherwise. And I think this definitely falls into that very gritty, very realistic, naturalist. Uh, slice of life film and you know you get you get the viewpoints of all these different people on the same block who all have their own journeys and are all trying to figure themselves out in different ways you know and you know and just touch a little bit too on the lgbt the, the lgbt aspects of this you know we have to remember that in 1999 um you know that 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 gay depiction and that gay depiction in mainstream films at this point was really just philadelphia and anything then comical i mean you always had that comical you know you would probably think he's gay guy or there were villains i mean you know i love the talented mr ripley but 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 Tom Ripley is the bad guy. Mm-hmm. You know, he's yeah. the one that's killing people and then trying to cover it up. You know, and and creating this complex web because he fell in love with Jude Law. I mean, who wouldn't? And um, you know, and and all that stuff. But you know, but like, but but so either they were villains or they were comedy. Like, I mean, Will and Grace had been on the air for about a year at this point. But that was once again, people could stomach because it, it was funny. You know, because you you can poke mm-hmm. fun at it, which is okay, which helped open up those doors. Don't get me wrong; I have nothing against Will and Grace at all. I love that show. 
But you know, but the thing is, is that but to have these very serious. I mean, this is before Brokeback Mountain. This is before right. um, you know a lot of the films that kind of helped open those doors that I think helped lead to better equality. And you know, and it was risky. You could you would risk a, you, you know you could really risk a huge backlash. And to me, if this had been more of a mainstream film, it probably would have received the backlash. You know, um, but luckily it's too smart, I think, for people who have those ideals to want to watch or to get through. So they they probably didn't know anyway. Yeah, yeah, I think you know, just it's interesting too because in an earlier episode of the of the this podcast, uh, Kai and I talked about Ace Ventura: Pet Detective, which is a movie that I really love because I grew up watching it, but has not aged well at all in regards to <laughs> you know the gay community or especially the end is like super transphobic. I mean, the whole big twist at the end is like, what? This woman was a man the whole time, and it, yeah. and it's played for laughs. They play the music from the Crying Game and everything. It's like wow. Uh, so I think you know, and I think that's a part of what makes doing this show so interesting is going back and watching these older films with sort of a you know respect for the 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 artistry of the film and then the context in which it was released, but also kind of putting it through a modern context and uh you know I think it's this the fact that this film still feels so fresh and so progressive it's probably of the la- honestly of the last couple of decades probably one of the best picture winners that has aged the best. Because a lot of yes. them, a lot of them are not. You know, Hollywood has a tendency of being very dated with with its uh, social politics and things like that. And, and I rightfully think, so. I mean, they have yeah. to play to the audience of the time, and you know, which is sad sometimes. But it's nice when you get movies like this, which kind of throws that out the window a little bit, and 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 and, and caters to the audience that it should be. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, we haven't really talked too much about Ricky and Jane, so I figured like, we should probably talk about their storyline before we start wrapping up. So Thora Birch and Wes Bentley in this movie. And that, it's weird for me still watching this movie with Thora Birch because I still see her as the little girl from Hocus Pocus. And then oh, this yes. is so far from that. It's only six years later. But much like, different. Here, yeah. here she has, she goes like, it's like a topless scene. She's just like totally emo. She's and, actually underage in that scene too, by the way. Is she really? So. I think she's only 17, which, I mean, you can do that with parental, you know, with parental permission. So, um, I guess it's not, it's not 100% in a sexual context. I mean, it's just, she's kind of no. just flashing him while, like, if it was in the middle of a sex scene, I think that would be kind of almost considered child pornography. Issue. Yeah. So, uh, what did you, you know, how do you feel about their storyline? To me, I think it's the one, it's kind of the least compelling of the three, uh, Burnham family members. Um, but I think it, it you know, and it's also probably the one that's sort of poked fun at the most, the fact that Wes Bentley's whole thing with, you know, the videotape and the most beautiful with thing the, I've ever seen, the plastic bag. Yeah, the five bag, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the plastic bag. But, you know, the plastic bag thing, yes, it does get that, you know, probably the one thing if people are familiar with American Beauty nowadays who maybe, you know, weren't paying attention or weren't even around back then would probably know the spoofing of the plastic bag. And that's an easy thing to spoof. And But, you know, the thing was that, that he was trying to show is that, you know, it's, it's once again, it goes back to that theme of looking closer mm-hmm. and um you know it's where you might not see you know where we might just say oh it's just a bag floating in the wind no look closer and you see the beauty of it dancing you know it looks like it's dancing right you know if you look really close to it and um you know and you know i i, I like that you know that this relationship was interesting maybe not as much from jane's side mm-hmm. but you know because jane i think had some other interesting aspects to her that you know especially with her relationship with her parents and her relationship with with angela but um but i think this is better for ricky's I think that that Ricky, you know, showing that you know what I, I came out of the mental institution, to, you know, uh, wherever else that his father had sent him, um, and I came back and I'm a new person. Where, you know, I know what I want. 
and I'm going to go for what I want. And I'm going to fight for what I want, no matter what the risks are to it. You know, I'm going to, you know, I really want to be with Jane, and I'm going to show my my love and appreciation, or maybe almost a little bit creepy. Um, you know, I think lighting your name on fire in the lawn that probably a little, a little too. That was a step too far. Yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> Maybe don't do that, but I mean, but the thing is that he's you know and videotaping through the window and, and things like that. It's creepy, yes, but at the you know, and I'm not suggesting anybody ever do that. I don't think that's a, a healthy way of of pursuing somebody. But he made it clear that that's what he wanted, and that, that he was confident that you know that if he wanted that that she would say yes or she would say no, and if she said no, it wouldn't end his life. Right, and He'd then move on. To- he has that that scene with her at school where she's like, "Stop, stop obsessing over me." He's like, "I'm not obsessing. I'm just curious." And and it's like, you know, it feels like everybody in this film is just striving to be better, striving to be something that they're not or or like at odds with themselves. I mean, and Mina Suvari's Angela has that line at one point that she's like, there's nothing worse in life than being ordinary. That just I had I had to write that down because I, I thought it was, you know, it, it really feels like the mission statement of this movie in a lot of ways, that this just feels like another house, another family in another neighborhood in another average American city. And they've all sort of settled for what they think their roles are rather than pushing themselves to, you know, to, to pursue who they really want to be. And I think Ricky's, uh, Ricky's sort of, uh, off kilter way of looking at things really, really kind of brings that, uh, you know, brings that theme across the finish line. I mean, right. But at the end, you know, uh, they walk in to see Lester's body and instead of screaming or freaking out, he just kind of looks closer and notices that, he was notices that he was happy in that moment and that, mm-hmm. you know, that he was, he was at peace when, when it happened. And, uh, you know, I think, I think that really sets him apart from pretty much all the other characters in that regard. Um, it's, yeah, I, I think, I do think that his, their storyline does feel like it develops Ricky way more than it develops Jane. She just, he's the one that has the agency in the end to be like, if I go to New York, will you come with me? She's like, Sure. That's her agency. Sure, I'll go along with you. Um, yeah, but remember that development only. I, and I think you mean that development only in terms of that relationship with right. Ricky, not her overall right. development. Because I course. thought she was pretty right. well developed, and I think in that respect that that was kind of that was a kind of way of linking the two families together. Right. In the context, you know? and of so maybe it wasn't the strongest, but it, it, at least it was a bridge between the two. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I meant more in the context of that relationship and. And uh, he's the really the one that kind of pushes it forward. I mean, he's the one with the camera, <laughs> so he, yeah. he's the one that kind of initiates that uh, that romance. Following the footsteps of Lester's life flashing before his eyes and kind of wrapping <laughs> things up. Let's let's kind of what is sort of your what are sort of your final thoughts just on the film as a whole, and what would you say to people that haven't seen it to recommend it to them? I think that if if somebody wants something different from from the the, the usual formula that Hollywood gives us, that that. American Beauty is exactly what they need to see. That it has to be something provocative. That it has to be something thought provoking. I mean, if 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 you're a dumb person, this is not the film for you. <laughs> you know, this is this is something that you know. It's not just it's not escapism either. This is something that where you know you're watching it and you're really thinking about it. You know, through the movie, you're thinking about it after the movie. You're thinking about it 20 years after the movie. Um, you know, it, it it still crosses my mind every once in a while. And and I think it's one of those that that really hits hard. That really hits you at home, and to me, it's it's by far one of the most perfect. It, it you know I don't know if anything ever in life is perfect, but to me, American Beauty is probably what comes the closest. I used to change my my mental list of my favorite movies of all time almost on a monthly basis, almost on a yearly basis. This movie has sat at the top of that for twenty years. 
Wow. And then nothing has been able to budget. And I've loved a lot of good movies. And there's been movies that have been, you know, that have been up there, but nowhere near it. I mean, and, and just watching it again recently, just it was the first time I watched it probably in like maybe six or seven years. Um, you know, I thought, well, you know what, this might bring it down. That I was afraid to watch. I was afraid to bring it down because sometimes movies don't time very well. You know, they don't, you know, age very well. Mm-hmm. But no, it's still there. Yeah, I mean, this is only the second time that, like I said, this is only the second time I've seen it. And I mean, I have to, it's, I don't know if it's, like you said, I don't know if perfection is ever really a thing, but it's it's definitely really close up there. And, uh, you know, if I had to give it a rating, it's probably like a four and a half out of five at least. And this is on my second viewing. But, you know, the, the part of what makes the uh, movies so rewarding is that everybody sees something different and that everybody gets something and what resonates, what hits you a certain way might, you know, might, might resonate stronger with you than it does with me or vice versa. But I mean, I, I think universally, universally, this is objectively a great movie and it, it's definitely one that I would recommend that people check out if they haven't already seen it. All yeah. of our perspectives and experiences are different. So, right. you know, obviously like for me, like I keep talking about, you know, some of the, the gay context in it, but that's because I'm gay, you know, that's, that's part of my thing where you, you know, you're going to take something different out of that. You're going to go in and, you know, and you might even be more focused on the family aspect of it because, you know, you have a family. That's, that, I have, that, that I have makes a wife sense. And I have a wife and child. And yeah. Actually, it's funny because <laughs> Kai and I, Kai sat with me while and when I was watching this earlier today and I was telling her, I'm like, Hey, at least we're not that bad. <laughs> Things like that. Like, let's not, that, let's, let's not let us become a, let's not let that become us. It's sort of a kind of a cautionary tale in a way. It's like, Hey, I don't think Kai would ever allow that to happen. So. No, I don't think so either. <laughs> so, uh, I guess sort of wrapping up, like Mike, where can people find you online? Find more of your work. Um, you know, probably the best way to find me, um, even though I'm not really, I mean, I'm a Facebook person, but not really a social media person so much. But um, if you look up Alpha Waves Radio, um, you, you know, it's on Facebook, it's on Twitter, it's on Instagram. Um, you know, those are good ways of finding me. And those usually help give you other avenues to find me as well if you really want to look for me. Um, you know, I, I do encourage people to kind of join us on our Patreon page. I think we all have those now. Um, so it's, 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 but it, but it really helps, you know, keep these shows going. Like, you know, just like, crooked table just like alpha waves radio this takes time and energy and resources that uh that that cost money or you know or time and such or takes us away from things that could make us money so you know it's it's a way of at least showing some support you know by just showing a few dollars so there that's at patreon.com slash alpha waves radio and um you know and those are probably the best places that you can find me Great, great. Yeah, I mean, yeah, as, as you mentioned, this is really a labor of love, and this is sort of us following our passions with Alpha Waves and Crooked Table. And so, uh, you know, I really I appreciate anyone that wants to donate either to your Patreon or to Crooked Tables, uh, because it means a lot to us to be able to do this and to get any kind of monetary compensation, compensation is very much appreciated. So in that regard, uh, Mike, thanks so much. I really appreciate you sharing your passion for American beauty with uh, with me and our listeners. And uh, I'll definitely have to have you on the Crooked Table podcast again someday soon. I hope so. Maybe in another seven years you'll bring me on. So it's like our <laughs> pond far. Yeah, there it's you our go. pond far tables. So <laughs> There you go. If you're interested in joining me on the show to chat about one of your favorite films, head on over to crookedtable.com slash guest. Or you can consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash crookedtable of course, you can always find more podcasts, reviews, videos, and other movie-related goodies over at CrookedTable.com. Until next time, this has been the Crooked Table Podcast, and I've been Rob. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of the